prophet Ezekiel this morning, and uh, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles to Ezekiel. We're going to be looking at eight chapters this morning. I uh, hope you don't have lunch plans. Uh, no, it's, uh, um, we're just going to read one of them, uh, chapter 28, and that's on page 847 in your blue Bibles. If you uh, don't have your own Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. Chapter 28, this is in a a long section in which there are prophecies against the nations. And we're going to get a sample of that in chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God. Though you think you're as wise as a god, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised in the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Sidon, prophesy against her and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Sidon, and I will gain glory within you. They will know that I am the Lord when I inflict punishment on her and show myself holy within her. I will send a plague upon her and make blood flow in her streets. The slain will fall within her with the sword against her on every side. Then they will know that I am the Lord. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will show myself holy among them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who malign them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. This is the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. We sing a hymn now. We've seen in our study in the last few months that the prophecy of Ezekiel contains some rather strange visions, some rather bizarre actions, and certainly very harsh and stinging words. But I think we've also noticed that it isn't just a a collection of sayings and events thrown together in a jumble. It's a fairly well-organized piece of literature. It's all carefully arranged, and most of it follows a very careful chronological order with precise dates given in the text. In the first week, we uh, talked about the overall structure of the book, which is directly related to its central message. God's grace comes through a a recognition of God's truth. Well, this morning, I want to get back to that, that that structure of the whole book for a moment, because we've reached a critical point in the story. Now, go back to the very first verse of the book, which sets the whole scene in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. It was July 31st, 593 B.C., And Ezekiel was among the Jews who'd been exiled from Jerusalem five years before. And they were now living in a refugee camp by the Kabar River in Babylon. They'd been taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. And they'd been driven like cattle some 800 miles from home. And despite the preaching of Jeremiah, the Jews were perplexed about all that was happening to them. Had their God, the Lord Yahweh, been defeated by the Babylonians? Had he abandoned them? Now, many didn't think that was possible. I mean, uh, sure, they, he, he may have uh, given them up for a moment, but, but surely they'd be back in the land within a few short years. Uh, they'd heard that the Babylonians had surrounded Jerusalem again. That's true. But, but surely he would be pushed back. It was unthinkable to them that the Lord would allow the temple in Jerusalem to be touched. After all, that was his sacred dwelling place. But they were a distressed people. And as we saw last week, many were complaining that they were getting a raw deal. I mean, they were suffering for the sins of their parents. Surely none of this was their fault. Well, in this setting, this young priest in training named Ezekiel suddenly receives these awesome visions of the glory of God. In this vision, God was surrounded by this company of strange, angelic creatures with with faces like animals and set on wheels within wheels and there was light flashing like flashes of lightning and so on. And there in Babylon, Ezekiel saw the Lord in all his fiery holiness and he was overwhelmed by his brilliance. And this was not just a a God who was some impersonal power. No, he was a living person. And this God revealed himself in words And he commissioned Ezekiel to be his prophet, to speak his words to his people. This glorious God speaks 
And more than that, this glorious God means what he says. And since the time of the giving of the law to Moses, the people of Israel had been warned over and over again, if they did not keep the terms of God's covenant with them, they would be punished. And now the time of reckoning had come. They had been unfaithful to the Lord, prostituting themselves to other gods. And now they would suffer the consequences of their sinful actions. And using a variety of unusual means, Ezekiel was called to deliver this message to his people. Now they may seek to hide from it, or deny it, or blame it on others. But until they face the truth of who God was, and the truth of who they were in his sight, that is until they acknowledged that they were guilty before a holy God, and turned from their sin, they could not enter into the grace and mercy that God offered them. They must take responsibility for their own sinfulness. You see, this is what the whole first half of the prophecy of Ezekiel is all about. God was merciful, but they must be repentant. You see, in God's moral universe, this is how it works. Reconciliation could take place no other way. And so we ended last week's message from chapter 18 with those telling words. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Repent and live. But they did not repent. And in chapter 21, we read the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Jerusalem. Preach against the sanctuary. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to her, this is what the Lord says. I am against you. I will draw my sword from its scabbard and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Therefore, groan, son of man, groan before them with broken heart and bitter grief. And when they ask you, why are you groaning? You shall say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt. Every hand will go limp. Every spirit will come faint. And every knee will become as weak as water. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. And it did come. In chapter 24, the Lord reveals to Ezekiel that His judgment upon Jerusalem has begun Chapter 24, verse 1, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day, that is the 15th of January, 588 B.C., the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, record this date, this very date, because the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And then in verse 21 of that chapter, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am about to desecrate my sanctuary. The stronghold in which you take pride, the delight of your eyes, the object of your affection. The sons and daughters you left behind will fall by the sword. This, you see, was the worst message that they could imagine. Their whole view of the world was turned upside down. Darkness descended upon them as they thought of, of what this would mean. Jerusalem destroyed. The temple of God desecrated and demolished. And the people of God, their own sons and daughters, they left behind lying dead. Now, it will not be until verse 21 of chapter 33, some three years later, that Ezekiel will hear news of what actually happened as a result of that siege. And only after that point, beginning in chapter 33, does Ezekiel's message turn from that of judgment to that of mercy. 
Or you see, God's grace must come through truth. But in this period of dark suspense, that is between chapter 25 and chapter 33, for eight chapters, the prophet turns his attention away from Israel and he prophesies against the nations that were immediately surrounding her. Beginning with the Ammonites directly to the east of Israel, Ezekiel moves counterclockwise addressing the Moabites and the Edomites to the southeast, the Philistines to the west, then the cities of Tyre and Sidon to the northwest, and finally, in an extended section, he speaks against the Egyptians further afield. Seven nations in all. And to each, he announces the Lord's judgment upon them. Now you can see this uh, outline uh, in the sermon outline in your bulletin that describes where he goes in these chapters. So I want to ask this morning, what are we to make of this new direction in Ezekiel, turning from Israel to the nations round about? Well, I want to address the significance of these prophecies against the nations under three headings. And the first and most obvious implication of these prophetic oracles is that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, was not just some provincial deity limited to some defined geographical boundaries. No, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is also the God of the whole world. The Lord rules the nations. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Nothing and no one is outside His sphere of sovereignty. You know, the prophet Isaiah had uh, affirmed this a hundred years before. Isaiah had said, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? Since the earth was founded, the Lord sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. And the prophet Daniel would affirm the same message. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. The Lord rules. The Lord rules the nation. Now, you see, the Israelites in this time of crisis, they needed to hear this. You see, they could have easily come to believe that the Lord, he, he just wasn't big enough or he wasn't strong enough to stand up to the powerful Babylonians and their gods. In the battle of the gods, Yahweh, you see, appeared to be the loser. But it wasn't true. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was just a tool in the Lord's hand. And neither the Babylonians nor the Egyptians nor anyone else could resist the sovereign rule of God. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And if the Israelites need to hear that, then don't we? I mean, we listen to the news, we read the newspapers, we see the unfolding of history before our very eyes in the Middle East or in Africa or in Asia you know, we're, we're tempted to think it's all an uncontrolled chaos. And it may appear that way to us, but it's not. Our God reigns. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? Since the earth was founded, he sits enthroned the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. So we shouldn't panic. We shouldn't cower in fear at the prospects for the future. No, our God reigns. He rules the nations. He is working out His sovereign plan. I like how one commentator puts it. He says, the Bible gives full scope to the reality of human freedom and responsibility. Peoples and nations plan what they plan. They do what they do. And one day they will give an account to God for the exercise of their freedom. But behind and above all of that, the Bible unquestionably affirms that there is a mysterious freedom and sovereignty of the creator of the universe at work in it all. His purposes will not ultimately be defeated. And even the evil that people do can be turned to good ends by his sovereign power. The Lord rules the nation. And let me bring this a little closer to home. Are you tempted to limit the Lord's sphere of influence to just certain parts of your life? You can trust God with the religious aspects of your life. You're you're confident that you're, you're going to go to heaven and so on. But you're not really sure that he's sovereign of your workplace or over your boss. You're not really sure he's sovereign over family relationships or your marital prospects or, or whatever it may be. I mean, you may feel that your circumstances, the circumstances of your life are so out of control that not even God himself can make sense of it. No. The Lord rules the nation. And that means he rules everything. And that's the first thing this passage ought to say to us this morning. And this message, you see, had to be an encouragement to the exiles in Babylon as they waited to hear what was happening back in Jerusalem. In that dark hour, it must have lifted their spirits to know that the Lord, who, who seemed to have turned against them, would also turn against their enemies. In that sense, you see, the Lord would not abandon them to, our, uh, to their oppressors. He would still be their protector. And when you look at these prophetic accusations against the nations, the ground for their confidence becomes even clearer. For in each case, you see, the Lord is particularly concerned about how these nations acted in relation to the people of Israel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 25, verse 2. Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated. And over the land of Israel, when it was laid waste and over the people of Judah, when they went into exile, therefore, I am going to give you to the people of East of the East as a possession. Verse six, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nation. Or twenty five, verse eight, because Moab said, look. The house of Judah has become like all the other nations. Or verse 12, because Edom took revenge on the house of Judah. Or verse 15, because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. 
Or 26, verse 2, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, ah, the gate to the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Or in chapter 28, verse 26, it sums it all up. Speaking of the Israelites, the Lord says, I will inflict punishment on all their neighbors who malign them. You see, as the Lord looks at these nations, it is their gloating, their vengeful attitude, their disdain and contempt toward Israel that arouses the Lord's anger, wrath toward them. You see, even in her sin, even in the midst of her disciplining punishment, Israel remains the apple of the Lord's eye, the center of his redemptive purposes in the world. And what did the Lord said? What did he say to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12? He says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. It was happening. Now, this could make the Israelites proud and arrogant and self-centered. But what was the purpose of that promise to Abraham? It's found in the very next line of the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. You see, here's the twist. Uh, Christopher Wright in his commentary brings this out well. He says we have two complementary truths here that we have to hold together. On the one hand, whatever the Lord Yahweh did among the nations was ultimately for the benefit of Israel, his covenant people. Yet on the other hand, what Yahweh did for Israel was ultimately for the benefit of the nations. You see, God's providential reign over the nations is related to his redemptive purpose for his people. But his redemptive purpose among his people is related to his missionary purpose among the nations. The two cannot be separated. That's what we read in, in Psalm 67, with which we began the service. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your ways may be known on earth. Your salvation among all nations. I think the same dynamic is at work in our day with regard to God's people, the church, the church of Jesus Christ. You see, the way people respond to the church is the way they respond to Christ for good or for ill. I mean, didn't Jesus say the way they treat the least of these, my brothers, is the way they treat me? And so I think it's fair to say that God runs the world for the sake of the church. But also that God calls the church for the sake of the world. We have to hold both of these together. God is for us, but he is for us so that we might be for the world. And we must remember, just as Israel had to remember, that the same God who judges the nations judges us also. He is the Lord who rules all the nations. And I think that's the first and most important thing that these oracles declare. And in and through the nations, the Lord God will accomplish His purposes. Now, the second thing I want us to consider is this. And that's simply that all human pride will be brought low. Now, this is a prominent theme in these chapters, especially regarding the two biggest powers of the region, the big bullies, Tyre and Egypt. Of Egypt, we read verse, uh, chapter 30, verse 6, her proud strength will fail. Or verse 18, her proud strength will come to an end. 
And the glory of the Pharaoh of Egypt is compared to a great tree, a majestic cedar. And it was a God-given glory. As the Lord says in chapter 31, verse 9, I made it beautiful with abundant branches, the envy of all the trees of Eden in the garden of God. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because it towered on high, lifting its top above the thick foliage, and because it was proud of its height, I handed it over to the ruler of the nations for him to deal with according to its wickedness. And you see, this Garden of Eden imagery and the pride associated with it is even more pronounced in that oracle we read earlier addressed to the king of Tyre. Uh, chapter 28, look at that in verse 2. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the sea. Now think about this. Tyre was the... Uh, Hong Kong of the ancient world. It was mainly situated on a rocky island just off the mainland, about 100 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And the Phoenicians ruled the waves in those days. Tyre was a Phoenician city. The Phoenicians had established themselves as, a, as an economic power in the western Mediterranean and they had trade contacts as far as Spain and even into Britain. And Tyre's wealth gave its king its delusions of grandeur and invincibility and omnipotence and worldly sovereignty, which, which resembled a kind of claim to divinity. Almost like the bombast of a, a Donald Trump, I suppose. Verse 4, he says, By your wisdom and understanding you've gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. Now, there's no denying the king's wisdom, his understanding, his skill. And there's nothing wrong with his increase in wealth. It's the effect of this wealth that's the problem. Verse 5, because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. And that's the danger, isn't it? Wealth tends to give us a sense of self-importance, a feeling of superiority, of entitlement, a certain self-sufficiency. Who needs God when you've got money? And so he says in verse 6, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God. In the hands of those who slay you. You see, death does have a way of invalidating any claim to divinity. Unless, of course, you rise from the dead. Well, then in verses 11 to 18, the same prophetic denunciation is couched in the form of a lament. And, and we have even more of that creation language here. Verse 12, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, and so on. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud 
on account of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You've, become, you've come to a horrible end and will be no more. What a, what a declaration. Now what comes to mind when you hear that? Well, since the early days, some Christian theologians have read this oracle with its language of the Garden of Eden and guardian cherub and sin and falling to earth as a, as a picture of the fall of Satan. And this is often linked to similar imagery referring to the king of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. Uh, there we read, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. And in the, that expression in the King James Version was given as a proper name, Lucifer. How you have fallen, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pits. Now, is this really talking about some primeval fall in the angelic realm i don't think so now i don't doubt that there must have been such a fall since all that god created was good and somehow sin entered into the the cosmos to create the devil and his demons and there are a couple of new testament passages that point to some sin among the angels and their punishment but i agree with the reformers who sought to interpret these old testament texts in their context when they concluded that the prophet is just using highly poetic language, reminiscent of the creation count and, and Adam's fall to talk about the divine punishment of real historical figures, the kings of Tyre and of Babylon. So I conclude that the Old Testament does not engage in speculation about the origins or the life story of Satan in these texts or elsewhere. And for that, I suggest you go to Milton's Paradise Lost. It'll tell you all you need to know. Here I think we simply see the same pattern of pride and the arrogant aspiration to become like God, which was Adam's downfall and which recurs over and over again in human experience. We're all susceptible to it. In fact, we've all succumbed to it. For this, you see, is the essence of sin. Instead of humbling ourselves before the great and glorious God who made us for Himself and living in loving and obedient faith before Him, we seek to put ourselves in the place of God. And so in our pride, you see, we set ourselves up as the ultimate authority of right and wrong, good and evil. We seek to become a God. And isn't that the cause of so much of our frustration in life, so much of our discontentment in life, so much of our conflict in life, conflict between husbands and wives, between teenagers and parents, between co-workers, even conflict in the church? We all think we're God. We all think that our way is the best way, so we want it our way. And we rebel against authority because we're the highest authority in our lives. We're all... A lot more like the king of Tyre than we like to think. And we face a choice. 
We can humble ourselves before God now or one day He will do it for us. For the wages of such sinful pride is death. It was for Adam. It was for the king of Tyre. And it will be for us. You are a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God. Beware. Pride comes before the fall. As Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or don't you see, humbling yourself is simply a recognition of the truth. The truth of who God is. The truth of who you are. Humbling yourself, in a sense, is, a, is, a, is an aspect of faith. Human pride will be brought low. That's a lesson we learn from Ezekiel's prophecy against the nations. And there's one final lesson that comes from the series of prophecy against the nations, and it relates to the recurrent phrase that we find throughout the book. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, this phrase occurs 15 times in these eight chapters. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, think back at the beginning of his ministry. Ezekiel had come face to face, as it were, with the glory of God. And he'd been overwhelmed by his holiness and his majesty. And and so the, the prophet's utmost passion was that his people Israel would know this God as he did. His passion was that they would face up to the truth of who he is in all his holiness, in all his righteousness, and that they would recognize the depth of their depravity in prostituting themselves by setting their hearts on lesser gods, which are not gods at all. You see, Ezekiel longs to have his people know this God, to know that he is the Lord. But it doesn't stop there, you see. It can't stop there. For Israel's very purpose as a nation is to make this God known in the world. And you see, this is why the Lord had to deal with Israel, as he did. Their purpose as a nation was to display God's character to the world. But in becoming just like all the other nations of the world in their idolatry, their immorality, their injustice and their violence, they were displaying a degraded image of who God was. And in the process, they were profaning his name, profaning his name among the nations. And so Israel's punishment was necessary to vindicate the Lord's own holiness. But at the same time, the ultimate redemption of Israel would also be necessary to display God's grace. So whether in punishment or in redemption, in all that he does, our God acts so that the nations might know that he is the Lord, that he is the great and glorious God who rules the nations. He is the God who humbles the proud. He is the God who gives grace to the humble. And so we look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, a verse that we've considered before and which we'll look at again. I think it's a key verse in Ezekiel. 36, 22, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. You know, there's a sense in which the whole earth is already filled with the glory of God. But what's lacking is the universal revelation, recognition, and acknowledgement of that glory. And the great prophetic hope is that in the words of Isaiah, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. Or in the words of Habakkuk, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is what Jesus came to do, isn't it? Jesus came to be what Israel was meant to be. And ultimately to do what Israel was meant to do. To live in faithful obedience to the Lord. And to bring blessing to all nations. Fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. And that's why Jesus says after his resurrection, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. This is why Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. For in the end, in that heavenly glory, we will see a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. You see, then they will know that He is the Lord. Have you ever considered that that's why we exist as a church? That we might know this great God who's now revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and that we might become like Him and so make Him known by our words and by our deeds to the whole world. We must know Him in His truth and in His grace so that we can make that grace and truth known to the world. And you see, at a very practical level, that's why we have membership in this church. We have membership in this church because we don't want to give a false picture of God to the world. There's a sense in which we want to guard the reputation of God. You see, everyone is welcome to attend the church. Doors are open. But not everyone's welcome to become a member. For you see, when you become a member of our church, you proclaim that you accept God's truth. As the standard for your life. You admit that you've fallen short of it. And so you cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And you proclaim Jesus Christ as your Savior. But you also profess your desire to live in the light of God's truth. With Jesus Christ as your Lord. As a member of this church. You see you commit yourself to be a part of this project. Of building a community of grace and truth, which is simply another way of saying building a community that looks like Jesus Christ. That's why we care for one another. That's why we seek to build one another up in the faith. That's why we seek to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That's why we correct one another. That's why we sometimes discipline one another, lest the reputation of Christ be defamed. By the hypocrisy of people who speak one way and live another. 
If you're not committed to that project, the mission of building a community of grace and truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it would be wrong. It would be harmful for the cause of Christ in the world for you to become a member of a church. Don't do it. Building a community of grace and truth. You see, that's what brings honor to the name of Christ. That's what we want to display, to declare to the world that everyone, everywhere, may know that He is the Lord. So I ask you, do you know this God? Do you know the God who's now revealed Himself personally in His Son? The God who has now shown Himself to be a holy God, a merciful God. The God who has revealed His truth and His grace. In the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know him enough to want others to know him? Do you know him enough to want his name to be honored among the nations? He rules the nations. He brings down the proud but exalts the humble. And he's been given the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. That He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, You act in the world. You act in the world in judgment and You act in the world in mercy.